Words matter. They can change the course of your day. Just listen. You are brave. You are stronger than you think. You have value, worth, and dignity. Don't you feel better already? Welcome to Speak Healing Words, the podcast. Join author and board-certified life coach Janelle Reardon as she opens a very important conversation about the power of our words. Hello and welcome to Speak Healing Words, the podcast. I am Janelle, your host for today's conversation. I apologize. We are one week behind in our mini-series, Reflections. Last week was a super busy week for me. I had a heavy client load. And then on Friday, I had the privilege and the honor of being the keynote speaker at a an event in our area. And it was just so awesome. And yet it did require quite a bit of preparation on my part. So I had to let go of something, you know, practicing what I preach, healthy boundaries, not overdoing it, taking time for self-care and making some important choices. And so, but we're going to double up this week. I'm so ready. And we're going to address two decades. I'm looking in the rear view mirror of my life, having just celebrated a big milestone birthday, the big 6-0. I decided what a beautiful opportunity to look in the rear view mirror of my life and the beautiful identity markers that I am now seeing in my life. Identity markers being those things that lead us to our truest self. Identity markers can be the aha moments in our life. They can be the real deep hardships, the valley seasons. They can be the mountaintop experiences and everything in between. Uh, Mostly, mostly identity markers come in the ordinary mundane days that we spend here on planet Earth. So I'm entering my seventh decade. I'm not sure where you are. Maybe your third decade, your fourth decade. Ah, maybe some of you are in the second. I doubt that, that you're listening. (laughs) Most of us will be in the third, fourth, fifth, sixth. And so I just welcome you to listen between the lines, which is what we do here in our Speak Healing Words community. We listen between the lines. We are discerning and we listen to others' stories in order to inform our own. So hopefully as I share what I have seen in my rearview mirror, you'll hear some hints that might call you to make a better choice or to um, make a decision that maybe you weren't aware, because I have some life experience, (laughs) as they say in the farmer's insurance, I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. And so hopefully you will hear some valuable information and advice and wisdom and truth that will help inform your life journey. That is my hope. That's the reason I do what I do. I have lovingly entitled this episode, Listen to Your Body, because in this decade, my body really spoke to me. And I'm going to talk about a somatic psychological term, somatic meaning of the body, a term called embodiment, E-M-B-O-D-I-E-M-E-N-T, a very valuable piece of my therapeutic practice. I work a lot with attachment theory, a great deal with embodiment. I add the beautiful memory reconsolidation of aroma freedom technique, 
But embodiment is what I want to hone in on today. I feel like if I had known this word and known what it meant and understood somatic psychology, somatic being S-O-M-A-T-I-C, I may have been able to move through some periods in my life, which I didn't really even share here. I, I was anorexic for a time uh, in my college years, and um, I, I didn't even mention that. But so a lot of my my fourth, my 40, my 30s, my fourth decade, so it gets confusing. I'm talking about ages 30 to 39 today. I had repercussions of that earlier season in my life where I was anorexic. And so I definitely had a an opportunity in this decade to come in understanding embodiment. Embodiment defined is the practice of attending to your sensations. Awareness of your body serves as a guiding compass to help you feel more in charge of the course of your life. Oh, you know I have to repeat that. My goodness. Embodiment is the practice. It's a practice. That's what we do here. We practice attending to our sensations that happen inside of our body. Awareness of your body serves as a guiding compass to help you feel more in charge of the course of your life. Embodiment in somatic psychology applies mindfulness and movement practices to awaken body awareness as a tool for healing. So powerful. Oh my goodness. And so in this decade in my life, from ages 30 to 39, I opened a dance studio. I had twins I opened the studio in 1991. They were about 15 months old. My oldest daughter was about five. So I was already pretty full. And I thought it was a great idea. I I had received an invitation to go to a liturgical worship dance conference for five days. And my husband said, yes, God bless his soul. He let me leave. My mother-in-law helped. I'm sure my mom helped too. And I went away by myself with a dear friend for five days and did nothing but learn about dance in the faith tradition and what that meant. And it just blew my mind that I could actually use my dance gift to help train young dancers in how to dance for God. And it was a movement, a very big movement at that time. And so I came home all fired up with this vision to now take my dance gift and have a studio where I would train young uh, worshipers and I would train young uh, men and women to use their gift of dance to serve as a bright light instead of just being under the bright light. So the studio was named Bright Lights and it was based off of Matthew 5, 16. I thought I would do this forever, forever and ever and ever. Also in this decade, I started my homeschooling career with my children. I brought my my. Children went to one year of traditional school together, the twins kindergarten, my oldest was in fifth grade, and then I brought them all home the next year and we began homeschooling. My father also died during this period in 1993, which was 
a beautiful time of healing uh, his illness. He had throat and neck cancer, and it was difficult. But I spent some good quality time with my dad during that time. And, and on his deathbed, he actually talked to God and had a beautiful reckoning with God our Father. And I write about that in my first book, Rock Solid Families. And it was a beautiful, hard, and difficult period, obviously. Um, but my prayer for that, my, we were also building our dream home out in the country on two acres. And so I, I, my dream was that my father would actually get to see my uh, dream home before he died. And he did. He saw the bones of it anyway, the good bones. Uh, we had the framing up and he got to walk through it. And, it, and it's a dear, dear memory to me that he was actually there and was able to really be present and blessed and that we were in a, in a good place. So good memories there. Uh, my mother-in-law, my dear, dear mother-in-law, actually died as well in 1997, and that was devastating. Uh, it was very quick and swift and just left us all in, with a gaping hole in our hearts because I loved my mother-in-law dearly. She was a beautiful grandmother to our children, and they, she and her um Stephusband, my husband's stepfather, actually built a home on our property. So we were like just doing life together and it was just lovely. And I miss her walking in our back door. Hey. And so my mother-in-law took care of my children while I opened this dance studio uh, in the afternoons and then Rob tag teamed in the evening. So a lot was going on in this decade. But also I think the biggest thing for me was that I started a dream. But I also had the death of a dream all in this decade. In 19, so I started my studio in 1991. But in 1997, I was in a, a step aerobics class, if you remember that. And uh, my back just broke it. Something happened and my back was on fire. And I had just never experienced any pain like that in my whole entire life. So I, I got home somehow and I went to bed that night and the next morning I couldn't move and I tried to get myself out of bed and my husband was like, um, you're going to the doctor, this is bad. And so I did and after um, a few doctor visits, a chiropractor actually diagnosed me with spondylolisthesis, pars defect. So it's a stress fracture in your L5-S1 it is a congenital condition. I was born with it. You see it in a lot of athletes, gymnasts, dancers, anybody who arches their back, bends over backwards too much. <laughs> Are you listening between the lines? Yes. So remember, oh, and I'm also trying to get published during this, this decade. I was just a, a, a live little wire and I thought I could do it all because I thought I was Wonder Woman. And so during this time, my somatic, my body was crying out to me. And it was saying, Janelle, through the voice of my chiropractor, my doctor, she looked at me and she said, you have got to stop bending your back. You have got to stop bending over backwards. She actually said those words. You have to stop bending over backwards. Well, when she spoke those words, I heard in between the lines and I, discern, I discerned a spiritual message that was, Janelle, you are doing too much. Who do you think you are? You cannot handle all this. Your back is breaking. 
You cannot keep bending over backwards to make everybody happy. You cannot keep bending over backwards to try to prove that you're all this, that you are worth something, that you are your image. You've just got to stop bending over backwards. And so made a whole lot of sense to me. And then my doctor, my my general doctor, great doctor, he said, Janelle, you're not going to make it another year if you keep at this pace. He was a cardiac doctor and a homeopathic doctor. And I really trusted this man. And he was very sober with me. And he said, I, I have seen many people in the ER. I'm called Dr. Cardiac. And you're not going to make it. And it was a sobering day in June. I had just had another dance recital. I was, he said, every, every June I see you. And every June you're getting far more, um, you're falling apart more and more. So he's very frank with me and I trusted him. I'd been going to him for a long time. And so I decided to close my dance studio. And that really was the death of a dream for me. I died. I feel like Janelle, the dancer, died. I buried her. I grieved her. And it was also during this time that um, Janelle, the author, the uh, uh, some other gifts that were hidden lower came and got some sunlight. So I look back on this time with great fondness because I believe that it was a true um, crossroads in my life. I had to recognize my limitations. More than anything, that's what I believe I had to. I had to realize I had limitations. I had to face some demons in my life. And I've been reading a lot in that book, Callings. I've shared about it many times. And in the chapter, The Language of the Body, Greg Lavoie writes, Symptoms are often dreams trying to come through. Symptoms are often dreams trying to come through. If we ask our bodies what remedies they need, not just for the sake of curing them, but also for healing our lives, they'll tell us. He writes, the symptoms of our body are somatic. Our body talking to us could be the beginning of fantastic phases of life (laughs) or bring you amazingly close to the center of your existence or be a royal road to the development of the personality, the true self. Anyway, there's no known method I've ever heard of that will allow you to avoid a message that wants to come into your life. Listen to this. Physician and surgeon Bernie Seigel or Siegel writes, when you start looking for the message in dis-ease, your body is diseased. you realize that there always is one. We usually end up trying to eradicate our symptoms, right? Doctor, just get rid of them. I remember going to a doctor at age 28 when I was, I, I say the beginning of my real true falling apart and then coming back together again. I just wanted him to tell me I had some dreaded disease, he would fix it and I could go about my life. And that that doctor at age 28 spent two and a half hours with me and he said, I don't need to physically examine you at all. I want you to talk to me about your family. That's where that started. And then his prescription at the very end of our conversation after I 
shared some deep, deep hurts and wounds, he was like, you need to take six months off from all leadership. Love on that little sweet girl you have. I had one child at that time. Do what you've wanted to do your whole life and haven't been allowed to do. And I want you to sit in, sit in a chair for 15 minutes every day and do absolutely nothing. And I want you to start writing. And I have to give Dr. Grolke credit for my writing career, honestly. And I planted probably 100 geraniums. My husband built window boxes because at that time I just wanted to be European. I wanted to move and I wanted to live in Europe because I thought that would be great. And I bought flouncy skirts and I got my long hair permed because my mother never let me get a perm. And I did lots and lots of things I never would have done. And I did well for about six to eight months. Um, And then I just kind of went back to my old nature, which is what we do. So Dr. Bernie Siegel continues, we usually end up trying to eradicate our symptoms before finding out what dreams might be trying to come true. We kill the messengers before they had time to deliver their messages. Oh, I got to turn the page on that. It's so rich. He writes of soma significance. Sickness is a dream in the body and symptoms are possessed with soma significance. Symptoms have wisdom. They have metaphoric power. And the metaphoric power of my broken back was girl. You have limitations. You need to stop bending over backwards for everybody. You need to stop bending over backwards. Like I said, trying to prove your worth through your deeds and your activities and your rewards. There's a method in the madness of our symptoms. They are one of the languages of the soul. They are one of the languages the soul uses to get across to us something about itself. Ah, so powerful. So this decade taught me to listen to my body and that I had to, as nature, images to us in the fall, I had to release some things in my life that were no longer producing healthy, healthy, meaningful, rich qualities in my life. It was time to know my limits. And so I recently listened to this interview on NPR and their science researcher, reporter, Robert Krolwick. And he was talking about fall and and about trees not actually, um, how did he put it? Oh, that trees talk to one another. And he writes, why do we call this season the fall? Well, you know why, because at this time of year, the days get shorter and colder, the trees get kind of tired and dry, and they lose hold of their leaves. So a breeze comes by and then leaves just fall off. That's why we call it fall. Well, that sounds logical, but it's wrong, says Peter Raven, the director of Missouri's Botanical Garden. Trees don't just drop their leaves. Okay, lean in. The tree is getting rid of them. And Krolwick, the reporter, says, interviewer, so so it's like they're throwing the leaves off? Yes, Dr. Raven says, they're discarding them, discarding them when they become non-functional. So he said, it's really not like a fall, it's more like a shove. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Here's how it works. 
When the days get sufficiently short, when the signal comes, then you will see leaf after leaf, there will be a little layer of cells appear. They're called abscission cells. Abscission sounds like it's related to the word scissors because it is. Ab means away and scindere means to cut. So abscission means to cut away. So when you look at the leaf, you'll see a little line of cells right at the main stem. And right at the bottom of the leaf, yes, right there, right where it hits the stem. So right around this time of year, if you look at every leaf on a deciduous tree, right where it connects to the branch, at the very bottom of the stem, you'll see a little thin, bumpy line. I just did this yesterday on a walk, so I'm going to post that picture on our private Facebook page, which, by the way, we're in the midst of a transition, a beautiful transition to expand our audience and to grow into um, more spheres of influence where we can share the message of our online community. I am transitioning, drumroll please, to stronger than ever. Yes, so excited, stronger than ever. So we now, our private online community group is at stronger than ever. So you'll find that on Facebook. So if you look at the bottom of the stem, you'll see a little thin bumpy line. If you had a microscope, it would show you cells pushing that leaf away from the branch. Yes, I know, right? So I don't know, I don't know within days or maybe a week. And they're joined to that parent only by a couple of thin veins going from the stem up into the leaf. So with that very slender connection, you know, they will be kicked off, but they're sort of ready to be kicked off. Uh, so a wind will finish up the job. So actually, uh, Crowwitch says, you see, it's the tree that pushes the leaves off. The wind is just the garbage collector. So Crowwitch, the interviewer, raises this question. Why are deciduous trees so determined so programmed to kick off their leaves. And Dr. Raven responds and he says, put it this way. It's more efficient to get rid of your food production than it is to just keep it all there. So then why do we call this season the fall? Well, you know why, because at this time of the year, the days get shorter, colder, the trees get kind of tired and dry and they lose hold of their leaves. A breeze comes by and the leaves just fall off and that's where the the name of the season fall came from. But Peter Raven, the director of Missouri's Botanical Garden, you know, he assured us that it really ought to be called, and I love this, it all be called a get off me season. Oh, I just love that so much. Turn in the page. So in other words, leaves during the spring and the summer and the early fall provide food for the tree, right? They're kind of like the chefs or the tree's kitchen staff. But when it gets cold and food production stops, the tree now has a choice. It can fire the staff, drop the leaves, or it can make them permanent employees. I love this analogy. If you keep your leaves, then you don't have to grow any new ones in the spring. But lean in here, a leaf in winter, that can be a problem for the tree. 
If you have the leaves sitting there during the winter and it warms up, which it does here in Virginia all the time, and they start photosynthesizing, you know, they get some water up and then they start operating and making food and then all of a sudden the freeze comes. Winter hits again. There's a bit of an Indian summer. We have that all the time here. We really do. And then it just gets freezing cold. Today it's like almost 70. Tomorrow it's supposed to be like 40. So the leaves just die and then the whole plant can be killed. So it's very dangerous for the trees, the deciduous trees, to keep their leaves in the winter. If you keep your leaves and you can't get new ones and now they're dead, come spring, you'll starve. So it's a natural God-created process that happens. So it's better to shed them first, then you're not in any danger at all from freezing. I just drew from this NPR interview and I will put the link on our private page as well so you can listen to it. It's so powerful. I came to say that, you know, um, agree with Crowwich, the interviewer, that if trees could talk, they probably would call it the get off me season. So this decade of dance and this decade of listening to my body actually became a get off me season in my 30s. That decade from 30 to 39, where I had growing twins and an older daughter, homeschooling, running a very beautiful, successful, thankfully successful dance studio that I thought I would run and do forever and ever. And then all of a sudden at age 38, I break my back. I have to make a huge transition and dance is something that gets off me during this season. Yes, it felt like death. I literally felt like God took scissors and an abscission happened from where I was connected to the tree of my identity. Dance was my identity. It was who I was. Was, past tense. I didn't know what life without dance would even look like for me. I'd been doing it since I was four, twirling and dancing, competing. And so I remember when I had to close the studio, I actually sold it. It was very, very painful. And I sincerely thought, what? Who? Who am I? How do I do life now? And I entered a season in my life, which I'll share next time, of going into my closet and praying and being very, very quiet and still. It was a season of silence and solitude where I had to rediscover and find out who I was without an external <laughs> expression of dance. So I also call this a decade of a grievous disappointment. I was very disappointed that that was ending. And I came to realize that oftentimes disappointment, if we take the D away, it's his appointment. 
I knew that I knew that I knew way down in my soul, in my gut, in my knower, as I call it, that God was in this transition. And yet I was grieving and I was disappointed because we're human beings with emotions and change and transformation is hard and it it rarely is easy, especially when it's been something you've identified with your whole entire life. So I stepped off the stage into a period of silence and stillness, and that's where I discovered new gifts, gifts that were underneath all of those gifts, and they were now getting some sunshine. But disappointment was definitely a theme that ran through this transition, and I found a beautiful small essay by one of my favorite poets, David White, W-H-Y-T-E, and he writes, Disappointment. Disappointment is inescapable but necessary, a misunderstood mercy, and when approached properly, an agency for transformation and the hidden underground engine of trust and generosity in a human life. The attempt to create a life devoid of disappointment is the attempt to avoid the vulnerabilities that make the conversations of life real, moving, and lifelike. It is the attempt to avoid our own necessary and merciful heartbreak. To be disappointed is to reassess ourselves and our inner world. To be disappointed is to reassess ourselves and our inner world and to be called to the larger foundational reality that lies beyond any false self we had only projected upon the outer world. Wow, I want to read that again. To be disappointed is to reassess ourself and our inner world and to be called to the larger foundational reality that lies beyond any false self we had only projected upon the outer world. What we call disappointment may be just the first stage of our emancipation into the next greater pattern of existence. To be disappointed is to reappraise not only reality itself, but our foundational relationship to the pattern of events, places, and people that surround us. And which, until we, we were properly disappointed, we had misinterpreted and misunderstood. Disappointment is the first fruitful foundation of genuine heartbreak from which we risk ourselves in a marriage, in a work, in a friendship, or with life itself. The measure of our courage is the measure of our willingness to embrace disappointment, to turn towards it rather than away, to turn towards it rather than away. The understanding that every real conversation of life involves having our hearts broken somewhere along the line. And that there is no sincere path we can follow where we will not be fully and immeasurably let down and brought to earth. And where what initially looks like a betrayal eventually puts real ground under our feet. The great question in disappointment is whether we allow it to bring us to ground 
to a firmer sense of ourself, a surer sense of our world, and what is good and possible for us in that world, or whether we experience it only as a wound that makes us retreat from further participation. Disappointment is a friend to transformation. Disappointment is a friend to transformation, a call to both accuracy and generosity in the assessment of ourself and others, a test of sincerity and a catalyst of resilience. Disappointment is just the initial meeting with the frontier of an evolving life, an invitation to reality, which we expected to be one particular way and turns out to be another. What we expected to be one particular way and turns out to be another, often something more difficult, more overwhelming, and strangely in the end, more rewarding. Oh, thank you, David White. In your beautiful book, Consolations, the solace solace, nourishment and underlining meaning of everyday words. Disappointment is the pathway. It's the threshold. It's the way into beautiful transformation. I pray that you embrace these words as I did in this decade of my life in the 30 through 39 And that somewhere in the story of my disappointment, my grief, my difficulty of letting go, a huge, I mean, it actually was my identity. Dance was who I was. I'm Janelle the dancer. And that woman, when I look back at pictures, and I just did that on my 60th birthday, I'm like, wow, who was that woman? She was a piece of me for sure. But as I let go and as I endured that get-off-me season of my life, I discovered my truer sense of self, that I, Janelle, am Janelle, and I'm identified by Janelle, not by anything external that I do or bring to the world. I came home to me. I began, well, not, I didn't come home. I began my journey home to just living in my skin and being the true essence of who God had made me to be. So maybe today you're facing a disappointment, a big disappointment, maybe in a a marriage that is not going as planned. Maybe you've been betrayed. Your heart has really been broken in a friendship. Maybe disappointment has led you into a dark room of depression. Well, please hear these words from our brilliant David White again. I'm going to read them slowly. The measure of our courage is the measure of our willingness to embrace disappointment, to turn towards it rather than away. The understanding that every real conversation of life involves having our hearts broken somewhere along the way And that there is no sincere path we can follow where we will not be fully and immeasurably let down and brought to earth. And where what initially looks like a betrayal eventually puts real ground under our feet. The real question, the great question in disappointment is whether we allow it to bring us to the ground to a firmer sense of ourself. 
And that is what this whole episode has been about. To being grounded, to facing life, facing everything life has to offer us, to listen to our bodies when they're talking to us, when they're exhausted, when they're fatigued, when your back breaks, when your esophagus stops working, when you fill in the blank. What is your body saying to you today? Is it trying to get a message to you? Is there a symptom that has a messenger hid inside of it? Instead of running and trying to just get something to fix it quickly so that you can just move about your life the same way as ever, take some time to really think about what's going on inside of your body. Your body is talking to you. Listen to your body. I have loved this conversation with you and I want to hear from you. So please, please connect over on our private Facebook page at Stronger Than Ever with Janelle. Connect with me over on Instagram at Janelle Rarden. Please go to my website, JanelleRarden.com and subscribe to our weekly e-news and blog filled with remarkable resources and practical help for you to live your best life and be stronger than ever. And if you would, leave a comment and subscribe to the podcast and share this with your friends. We want everyone in our spheres of influence to be stronger than ever and to speak healing words to themselves and to everyone. And so I have loved being with you today. Please, please, please listen to your body. And remember, you have value, worth, and dignity. And don't let anyone tell you any different. Have a great day. Thanks for listening today. It was great having you here. For even more great content and conversation, please join the Speak Healing Words community at JanelleReardon.com.